G'day and welcome to Museo Punks, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. My name is Suze Anderson and I will be your host today as we explore boundary pushing practice in museums in all its forms. Since the early 1970s, countries around the world have held truth and reconciliation commissions, which are aimed at unearthing official truths about significant and large-scale human rights violations. These commissions fall under the banner of transitional justice, which seeks to address massive or systematic human rights violations that are so severe they cannot be dealt with adequately via the normal justice system. Commissions make recommendations for specific actions for justice, often with a focus on restorative justice, seeking to negotiate a resolution that will satisfy all of those involved. And in some cases, those recommendations have specifically addressed national museums and their role in bringing justice for the victims of conflict or human rights violations. So today on Museopunks, we're going to talk about truth and reconciliation. My first guest, Omar Eaton Martinez, recently wrote a piece of speculative fiction which imagined museums as advocates for human rights and healing through the use of truth-telling. My second guest, Karine Duhamel, examined some of the work she was involved with as curator of Indigenous content at the Canadian Museum of Human Rights, which was specifically focused on truth and reconciliation. One quick note before we start. My interview with Dr. Duhamel faced some pretty severe technical difficulties, and I was torn between leaving the interview off or including it despite those technical challenges we had in the recording. Her answers are so good that I've decided to share them, but it's not the prettiest listening uh, that you will ever encounter. So I apologize for the sound quality and for the abrupt end to the interview, but I think you'll find that what is in there is really worth listening to. Okay, catch you after the jump. Martin Martinez leads the Prince George's County Historical Resources and Historical House Museums, which includes the programming of those sites with an emphasis placed on preserving, sustaining and enhancing these resources, as well as engaging and building communities through education, outreach and innovation. Most recently, he managed the Interns and Fellows Program at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. He builds coalitions that support diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion. Omar has worked at the National Park Service, the Office of the National Museum of American Latino Commission, NASA, and he was also a kindergarten to 12 teacher in NYC and DC. His research interests are Afro-Latinx identity in museum exhibitions, diversity and inclusion in museums and cultural institutions, and hip-hop history, culture, and education. Omar holds a Bachelor of Arts in African American Studies, a Master's in Educational Leadership, and is currently a PhD student in American Studies at University of Maryland, College Park. Omar, welcome to Museo Punks. Thank you. Thank you so much, Suze, for inviting me to speak with you today. I'm excited about our conversation. Uh, me too. I am really excited. I've been doing a little bit of reading and research in preparation, and this is such 
a meaty topic. So to get into it, you recently contributed an essay about truth and reconciliation in museums to Museum 2040, which was a special future-focused edition of Museum Magazine. Let's kick it off by talking about why you felt drawn to this topic and also what the argument was that you made in that essay. Well, I think what drew me to this topic was the idea of social justice in museum work. So centering my work um, as someone who really deeply cares about social justice, which sort of translates through the work of diversity and inclusion and looking at accessibility and equity issues as well. But um, when I really started thinking about social justice the last few years, I started thinking that there's sort of a difference between talking about being an advocate for civil rights as opposed to being an advocate for human rights. Mm-hmm. And I found a much deeper connection to being an advocate for human rights. And I think um, if we start thinking about the differences between just civil liberties and things that are, that are sort of um, sort of hampered by or influenced by policy and and and, and legal le- legal things mm-hmm. then we think we think deeper than that because we know that we all we all say that we value human life and we all say that we value humanity um, but then sometimes our actions our policies our rhetoric um, pretty much show something different um, so that's what kind of drew me to this idea of truth or reconciliation I actually had met a woman um, last fall who had done a little she had gone through she was going through a leadership uh, program in her in her sector she's in higher ed mm-hmm. and um, she had done some research about truth or reconciliation and she had heard me speak about some of my diversity and inclusion work so we started having a conversation around truth or reconciliation and how that might look in the museum sector and then at the same time you know Elizabeth Merritt had talked to me about writing something about social justice and diversity inclusion uh, for this 2040 issue and that's sort of when I started thinking about hmm let's play with this idea of truth or reconciliation and let's and, and getting into the sort of the 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 role of, of futurism which was the very first time i ever even played with futurism as a lens for this type of work which i found mm-hmm. to be incredibly useful and then that's how i started to kind of apply truth and reconciliation based on some of the the very very um elementary research that i did on truth and reconciliation commission primarily in south africa canada and some other places Yeah, it's interesting to actually hear you sort of differentiate and talk about uh, civic rights versus human rights. I think when we start talking about these concepts, though, of truth and reconciliation, they're incredibly big concepts, but they have fairly specific meanings in this context. So can you talk a little bit about what we mean by truth and what we mean by reconciliation when we're talking about human rights and when we're talking then thinking about what that means for museums. Yeah, I think what, what I, how I look at truth and reconciliation is um, a, sort of a, a coming together where you understand that there has been these institutions that we call museums and other like-minded institutions have really taken um, 
have taken a stance on telling certain historical narratives or privileging certain types of art and culture or even going off in the science museums telling uh you know teaching people about science in a certain type of way mm-hmm. and when i think about truth or reconciliation i think there's been a lot of um misinformation about uh certain certain demographics uh whether we talk about um ethno-racial demographics gender uh religion um you know geographic or even you know you know, sexuality or, or, or gender biases, gender identity biases. Um, there's a lot of there's been a lot of like misinformation. So now, as we continue to progress in our understanding uh, through scholarship and through other social engagement, social activism, we're starting to see that you know we've been we've been treating certain people wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the idea about the truth part of the reconciliation is being honest about what the things that we have discovered, being honest that we have not treated certain demographics um, as full, fully engaged human beings in our society. And so when we're able to be honest, we're able to come to a point of, of a mea culpa, an idea that we're able to be honest and apologize about these atrocities that have occurred in the past. And these atrocities all have legacies. So it's like a, a spectrum of time that we're thinking about here that we're not folkloricizing the idea of First Nation genocide in our country, that we're not folkloricizing um, the enslavement of African peoples, that we're not folkloricizing this long, long history of, of immigration. So that we understand that all these things have legacies and they affect how we interact with each other today and how we value certain lives over others. Mm-hmm. And so with truth, if we're able to be honest about that, then it puts us in a position of humility and it puts us in a position where we actually can be reconciled with groups, whether on what side of the aisle or what side of the hegemony that we're talking about, because we know that there's people in power and there are people that are not in power. That's sort of the binary that we work from. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to blur that the line that divides that binary by being truthful and, and putting us ourselves in the position where we can reconcile uh, together as a country and as a larger global society. Yeah, one of the things that I think is quite interesting, in the Museum 2040 piece, you mentioned the Equal Justice Initiative, which was founded by Brian Stevenson. Now, one of the things that Stevenson has spoken about is an idea that truth and reconciliation are not simultaneous, but rather that they're sequential, that truth-telling has to come first. Do you agree with this idea that the truth has to be the foundation upon which any form of reconciliation is built? I believe that wholeheartedly. And for me, uh, personally, um, I kind of look at it from um, my faith perspective as a Christian, that when you are supposed to, when 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 you are saying sorry about something, you're not just, you're not just saying sorry randomly like a robot with no type of um, understanding of what you're saying sorry to. So in order for you to have an understanding of what you're saying sorry, you have to understand what the truth is. Well, that's sort of the knowledge and content portion that I believe Brian Stevenson is referring to, that you're you're educating people about these truths, and then these truths are then pricking you to, to understand that you've been wrong and that you are now re- repenting, right? You're repenting and you're turning away from those wrong, those wrong ideas of dehumanization that you've had uh, over certain populations and cultures. 
And so once you have, once you've turned away from from that 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 misunderstanding, that miseducation, now you're in a better position to say I'm sorry and to recon- and be reconciled. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think about museums and other heritage sites that maybe skip through that difficult work because it seems like this sort of truth-telling requires a lot of internal work. And I wonder whether there are institutions that you've seen that are seeking to move to the providing reconciliation stage without dealing with their own internal truths and what the effect of that is. Well, I don't know if I have um, any concrete success stories right now. I think uh-huh. what's happened in the past in the histories of our institutions is that when um, when certain populations see that um, that they've been marginalized and they've been um, they've been dehumanized, they mm-hmm. they kind of contend with those in power, and then. They they get rebuked by those in power and then they build their own institutions, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what I think ha- has been happening over the iterations of museums since the very beginning. Probably looking at what's happened most recently um, in the in the '60s, you know, 50 years ago, when you had this movement of of a lot of people advocating for 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 poor people and for people of color and other marginalized communities and then the result of that in uh, in this country were things like the studio museum in harlem mm-hmm. the Museo del barrio in um in harlem in new york the anacostia neighborhood museum which is now the anacostia community museum in dc under the smithsonian institution mm-hmm. those things were a result of people of, of advocates of activists who were rebuking the power structure got frustrated with that power structure and then built their own institution um as a result of that and um and i think that's that's the closest example i know of where you have some people kind of answering that. Yeah, it's interesting you talking about uh, people basically going off and creating their own institutions when the institutions that exist don't work for them. There are a number of museums around the world, including within the US, that do memorialize these histories of genocide and of human rights abuses, whether we're talking about the Canadian Museum of Human Rights, the Apartheid Museum in South Africa, the Genocide Museum in Rwanda, or something like the Holocaust Memorial Museum in DC. Is this something that all museums need to be grappling with, these ideas of truth and telling stories that have not yet been told and the stories of human rights abuses? Or is it enough that there are specific museums focused on these stories that have truth and reconciliation at the core of what they're doing? Yeah, I think it really has to be done in both ways and possibly a third one that we're not thinking of right now. I think that this is a truly systemic issue. And when you're dealing with systemic issues, there's no way that you can tackle it through one conduit. So if we're looking at, we're considering the two conduits that you mentioned, which are people building their own institutions, mm-hmm. sort of in a, in a rebuke to the existing larger sector, or if you're talking about people who are dealing with these larger uh, institutions that exist already and trying to change those things, 
I think both of those things have to be done simultaneously for systemic change to occur. Because mm-hmm. then what you have, if you just do one way or another, is that you'll have, if you're just doing it with institution building, then those institutions can 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 end up being marginalized in the larger sector, and they already have in some instances. Um, or you can have some people just trying to build the institutions or trying to change the larger institutions, which can take a lot longer and not necessarily uplift a lot of the good work that the culturally specific museums or the other museums like that you mentioned, like the Holocaust Museum or the Museum of Tolerance and, and things like that, uplifting that work as well is what's also necessary because they've been able to focus on those communities and that narrative and do that difficult work in a way that some of the uh, predominantly um, the, the, the traditional institutions um, have not been able to do. And I, I really feel strongly that it has to happen both ways and hopefully in concert with one another because then mm-hmm. you have these larger institutions that may have not had much success in dealing with it. Then you get to privilege the work of some of these smaller, mid-sized institutions that have been very successful in doing it. And that way both, both um, organizations are acknowledged for what they can bring to the table. When we think about then how um, you know museums are working going forward, uh, part of what we're talking about are sort of mechanisms for restorative justice, and there mm-hmm. are certainly, um, as you say, new institutions that can be built that have this at the core. But people in all kinds of institutions can really bear witness. And I think that's a lot of what you're talking about is this idea of bearing witness as a part of healing. Is that is that part of what's so critical in this process? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, you have to, I mean, if I understand what you're saying um, in terms of bearing witness is, is sort of acknowledging mm-hmm. uh, the things that are happening around them. Uh, to, you know, the, obviously the, one of the, the biggest um, um, I guess social movements, especially through social media, that affected our, our sector is is uh, things like museums respond to Ferguson, you know, uh, and uh, with you know, with uh, with Adrian Russell and Aaliyah Brown, uh, you know, bringing that consciousness to the field um, in a new way. Because I, I definitely am very careful of not. Uh, I don't want to make it seem like that is something new to the field from people who, who, who have been doing this work for a very long time. And it's not new, but it is something, uh, it was it was brought with a new twist and a new flavor and arguably a new set of, a new generation of professionals who really care about this work. Mm-hmm. And I'm really happy um, that, you know, Lee and Adrian were able to bring that in such a powerful way to engage the sector in a way that it hasn't been engaged with from that generation and in just more in more recent times, mm-hmm. and it really caused museums to say, "Hey, man, what are what are we doing uh, when these police killings occur? Uh, what are we doing when these different atrocities are still happening today in 2018? And and and, and do we have to wait 50 years to address these things if we're a history museum? Because that's sometimes that's sort of the sort of the um, the parameters that some museums have set for themselves in terms of dealing with public history? Or or do we make an exception for this because it's raised to such a high level in the media that we have to address it in order to maintain relevancy? And for me, it's all of the above. Are there certain exhibitions or exhibitions on certain topics 
that museums simply shouldn't be doing any longer? Are there exhibitions that could exacerbate the ongoing human rights abuses or inequitable conditions that people of colour face in this country or that, in fact, many people from historically excluded and underrepresented groups face? The biggest thing in public history that sort of, I guess, touches that that question that you're posing is, you know, the idea of Confederate memorials and should they continue to be up? And if they are, why and how, right? I mean, there's been a lot of movement, obviously, to take them down. And I think the movement has been, seems to have been fairly successful with maybe a few exceptions. Uh, but then, you know, then what do we, what do we do with these monuments? So should they be destroyed? Should they be should they be um, studied or contextualized? Um, and and for me, uh, I think it definitely has. They have to be contextualized. Um, I, I, I'm not too sure. I mean, if they need to exist, like in another space. I know some people think about, you know, maybe they should be put in a museum, and so the museum can can frame it in a way where where people can engage in conversation. Um, I'm not too sure about that, only because um, those 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 statues uh, tend to cause a lot of trauma for for people, and I think that's where the truth of reconciliation piece really plays a big role. Because I believe if the society as a collective understood the trauma that that causes people. And, and we were able to create an intimate space of, of of conversation and dialogue around that trauma that I don't think people would be so quick to want to continue to display those statues um, in any way. Um, I, I mean, and that's just me, my speculation based on the conversations and the research that I've, that I've done. I'm not I'm definitely not trying to espouse, and I'm completely right about that at all. I think that's something that we're going to still have to continue to work out in dialogue and try new things with. Um, but I'm really eager to see how the how the public history and the museum sector um, address it because it needs to be addressed, and I think we just need to try some new things and see how it goes, and and play close attention and evaluate the responses of the visitors, and evaluate the the, the curatorial practices around these new these new issues and how they engage with those statues. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about something like the Confederate monuments, we're talking about taking things down, taking them off view, figuring out where they live. Uh, another part of this um, then becomes a question of reparations and whether reparations need to be part of this discussion in some way and what that looks like for museums as well. Yes, um, I, I would tell you one of the things um, – I think I've talked to Elizabeth Merritt about and some, and, and, and some other people about the essay I was, I was able to write was had I had a chance to do it over again or to, uh, to maybe, you know, maybe create a newer version of it, I would have liked to spend some more time um, on applying the futurism lens on what reparations could look like. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really think when I, when I study more about truth or reconciliation, um, especially the commission of South Africa, it seems to me the biggest contention and shortcoming of the commission was the reparation piece. And so mm-hmm. how, how would that look? And how can we look about, look at, look, learn from those lessons, 
those hard lessons that uh, that South Africa has learned from and is still learning from about about that shortcoming. And um, you know, I think one of the things uh, for me is is how do we educate people about this truth? Um, how do yeah. we look at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? I mean, museums, and 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 instead of like thinking about um, a a personal payout to a demographic of people, how do we look at um, taking some monies and applying them to uh, museums and other educational institutions who are foregrounding the truth about um, things like the enslavement of Africans, the genocide of First Nations. The um, the racialization of immigration policies and how they differ depending on which you know where where people are coming from and and shedding more light upon that through K through twelve education but also informal education and and hopefully a, a really organized marriage between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the other things that is quite interesting or that. I've been thinking about a lot is we're living in this time where the term post-truth has started to come up and it's been used to really indicate circumstances when public opinion is shaped by appeals to emotion and to belief rather than to facts where truth is sort of almost superseded in search of an emotional hook. Mm-hmm. Now, this is pretty challenging for museums who swim in the language of truth and facts, yet we're also having these conversations in the sector about the importance of acknowledging a lack of neutrality in museums. So how do we balance this need for truth-telling and the emotional gravity of telling truths that are either unheard previously or maybe unpopular. If museums are thinking about these ideas of truth and reconciliation, how do they, in fact, I guess, reconcile their own truths and 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 come to an honest space for dealing with that? It's a it's a great thing to consider, Suze, because um, I think there certainly have been times where you know, emotions um, can begin to skew certain narratives. Um, yeah. But I think we also have to kind of take a step back and understand what exactly is being skewed. Um, because I think if we're talking about um, an interpretive, a, a docent telling a group that, you know, I don't know, 15 million Africans were enslaved when the numbers really show 10 million. I mean, is that that is an embellishment by by definition, but I think at the end of the day, the understanding is that there were way too many human lives kidnapped and brought over the Atlantic for no for 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 no uh no good purpose for the that for them. And, and and lives and the legacy of that transatlantic slave trade impacts us today, 200, 300, 400 years later. Um, where I do think that the emotional and the facts can work together, um, and I haven't been to the site, but what, from my, what, what I've seen on television and what I've read about it, I mean, the Equal Justice Initiative is a great, is a great example. Um, you know, you have 
the memorial to the lynchings, which are rooted in scholarship, and you have the presentation of that done in a way where it's going to emotionally engage you. Um, you are going to, to understand this in a way that is going to, to move your emotions, but then you're going to have factual information to, 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 to back that narrative up in a way that you can contextualize and build meaning for yourself. Another example would be um, there was a, a, an exhibition that existed in New York um, back in 2015 that I did some research on, uh, which was called Presente, the Young Lords in New York. Now, the Young Lords were sort of what most people would describe easiestly as the, um, the, the Puerto Rican version of the Black Panther Party. And they actually worked in coalition with the Black Panther Party, among other like-minded organizations around uh, poverty and oppression of, of people of color. And so mm -hmm. they did a three-part exhibition in the Bronx Museum of Art, El Museo del Barrio, and the Lower East Side Cultural Center in Lower East Side, Manhattan, and which were all three locations where they had chapter offices for the Young Lords. And um, they did a great job in talking about um, um, the, the fight that they had uh, against police brutality, the fight that they had against poor public housing, the fight that they had against um, poor public health for, 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 for Puerto Rican people and, and, and other people of color in those areas. And it was an emotional time, but it was, it was rooted in, in, in fact and in scholarship. And, it was, and, and what, what I love about it was it was the, the curators that were involved were from different disciplines. You had mm -hmm. people like Joanna Fernandez, who was an historian, um, and she was sort of like the lead curator and did, um, did a, a lot of the work uh, in the Bronx Museum of Art. Then you had people like Yasmin Ramirez, who was an art historian, who worked on a, a, a part of what was in Museo del Barrio. And then you had somebody like Wilson Valentin Escobar, who, uh, is, um, who has you know, taught, taught history, but is an Americanist, is an American studies scholar, American civilization scholar, uh, a, a Latino studies scholar, was able to use an interdisciplinary approach for the, the curation he did at the Lowy Sada Cultural Center. So I, you know, I think that there's ways where you can have different levels of scholarship, even from different disciplines, rooted in truth, rooted in research, but also creating that emotional tug for you to understand and really make meaning for yourself as you go through these, go through these exhibitions and learn from them. Yeah, that's great. Omar, you serve on the board of Museum Hue, which gives museum professionals of color an opportunity to be seen and heard in a paradigm that is designed to keep them invisible and voiceless. I think there are a lot of museum professionals, many museum professionals who do wish to help um, ensure that professionals and visitors who've traditionally been excluded from conversations have a voice and are visible. But what are some effective ways that cultural workers can do that, can help support their peers, raise the visibility of museum professionals of color? Well, certainly, uh, since, since you offered the free plug, you know, become a member of Museum Hue. It's now a member-based organization at museumhue.com. Um, and I think really it's, you know, using, you know, partnering and getting to know the work of organizations like Museum Hue, 
um, understanding the work of uh, certain initiatives and, and, and movements like Museums and Race, um, and also, you know, projects uh, like Mass Action, which is, which has been, um, you know, funded very well by Minneapolis Institute of Art, and and really understanding like what the problems are, and to do a little myth breaking around things like, you know, I can't find uh, talent in certain specific or even not so specific. Uh, careers within museum sector. Um, you know, I've sat on um, I've sat on a couple of panels with uh, the, one of the museum uh, Hugh founders, Monica Montgomery, at the American Alliance of Museums, and even at the at the Association of African American Museums, where you know there's this myth that you know people of color uh, are not interested or are not visible. Uh, to easy to find in um, in this industry, and I and I just really I, I question that, and I question that mm-hmm. for these this you know couple of reasons. One, one, a lot of people who are making these claims are operating from a biased lens, and we all have them, right? I have biased lens. Everybody has it, right? But when you talk about an operating from a biased lens, what you're really saying is you have some blind spots. And in order to address a blind spot, and the best analogy I, I, you know, I can come up with is, you know, if you're driving a car, which I know everybody is not able to drive, so it may not be the fully inclusive analogy, but if, you, if you're driving a car, or even if you're riding a bike, or even you're walking down, or, or, or if you're wheelchair-bound and you're going down a sidewalk, if you are going to change lanes, or if you're going to lean to the left or lean to the right, there is going to be a certain spot your peripheral vision is not going to allow you to engage with which means you're going to have to make some effort to turn to the left or turn to the right to see that area that you cannot see naturally in your peripheral and that's what's not happening in our field our field is not making that extra turn to the left or that extra turn to the right to see that there are people willing and able and some very well trained and educated already to to do this work. And so that's where organizations like Museum Q come in where they've created uh, this, this wonderful Facebook page that have allowed people to find out about jobs, find out about internships, find out about fellowships and apprenticeships where you can engage people of color who are really strong, shown a strong interest. Some of them already have incredible resumes, and some of them are emerging or, or newer, uh, newer to the field, but still have great aptitude to do this work. And so, I think it's just really about learning about all these different organizations that have really been foregrounding uh, people of color from the very beginning. Uh, one of the great organizations I always really am in awe of when I see, uh, when I always meet somebody who either used to work there or, or, or maybe still work now is is, is the Studio Museum. So many mm-hmm. museum educators, museum administrators, museum curators have come from that. And it's because you have leaders like Velma Golden who are intentional about training up the current and next generation of museum professionals. And I think if we're more we're more serious about the succession planning of our field, which I think is sector-wide and really a problem across race and across gender, because I think everybody suffers from poor succession planning. But if you mm-hmm. while we're addressing well, we're understanding this poor succession planning, let's center, let's take this opportunity to address that issue by centering uh, museum professionals of color 
and, and giving opportunity and coming up with, with uh, different constructs and different conduits and, and different pathways to allow people to grow in this field in a way that will change the whole field across the board. Yeah, and that will take us hopefully further along the path of telling truth about histories that are maybe not told at the moment. I think it's, you know, you talk about sort of representation and making people visible and giving them voice. I think a big part of changing any sector is just representation. Absolutely. You 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 know, the old adage is everybody wants to see the visitors, the audiences, the stakeholders want to see themselves in the museum, not just in the content, but in the people who are who are stewarding the content. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's 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 across sectors. That's why I mean I think it's really important for us when we when we deal dealing with this work systemically that we are also partnering with other organizations that may not be you know quote unquote museums or or public history sites or science centers, or galleries, or even libraries. I think we need to go beyond that. I mean, the, the, the closest one, I think, for a lot of us is is education, whether that's K through 12 mm-hmm. or higher ed. But I would also argue other community-based organizations that are doing social advocacy for for these for all these demographics that have been marginalized for so many generations. We need to lock arms with them as well, because this is a systemic issue, and it will not be resolved by any one sector. Omar, if people want to get in contact with you to talk more about these ideas or to find out more just about your work in general, what's the best way for them to do so? Um, I'm happy to receive um, any direct messages on my my Twitter account. That might be the the, the best way. Um, And that's at O-E-T-O-N Martinez. So it's all one word, at O-E-A. T in Thomas, O, N is in Nancy, M is in Mary, A, R, T is in Thomas, I, N is in Nancy, E, Z is in Zebra. So I think if they, if they direct message me there, um, that would be a great start. Omar, that is fantastic. I will put a link to that as well as to many or all, in fact, of the groups that you've mentioned, like Museum Hugh, in the show notes. Thank you for coming on to Museopunks and talking about this topic with me. It's been enlightening and super interesting. Excellent. I enjoyed it so much, and thank you, Suze, for inviting me. It is such a pleasure. All right. Talk to you again soon, Omar. All right, Suze. Dr. Kain Ulama is Anishinaabe and Mete and holds a PhD in history from the University of Manitoba. Dr. Duamel was formerly adjunct professor at the University of Winnipeg, where she developed and taught courses on the history and legacy of residential schools and on Indigenous relationships with the state. She has worked as the Curator for Indigenous Rights at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, focusing on developing exhibits and programming focused on truth and reconciliation, as well as the history and contemporary legacies of colonialism. She is responsible for important revisions in the process and in content within the institution. Dr. Duamel is currently on leave from the museum, working as Director of Research for the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls until the end of its mandate in April of 2019. Kayin, welcome to Museopunks. Thank you so much. 
it is so, so lovely to have you here. So as I was mentioning to you just when we were briefing, this is an episode where we're really talking about truth and reconciliation in museums. And my first uh, guest on the podcast is Omar Eaton Martinez, who was really talking about his vision for truth and reconciliation in American museums. But in Canada, there has been a formal truth and reconciliation process, which included a truth and reconciliation commission formed in 2008. And this is, this is a fully formalized state-led discussion. Can you tell us a little bit about the history and the legacy of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and how these conversations got started in a formal way in Canada? Yeah, I, I'm happy to do that. I think it's really important. You know, everyone looks at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada as sort of a state-led initiative, but important to note that actually it was formed as a result of the largest class action settlement in Canadian history, whereby survivors of the residential school system and family members of survivor, of people that did not survive uh, actually led a lawsuit against the Canadian government. And as part of the settlement, which included financial compensation on an individual basis, as well as uh, monies for commemoration uh, and for legacy projects, uh, one of the settlement terms was the foundation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. So while it's sort of, you know, the commission itself may have been state-led, certainly its formation was led by people who survived this genocidal system that existed in Canada, uh, you know, for over a hundred years. Um, and, you know, which, through which thousands and thousands of Indigenous children uh, were, you know, stripped from their families, ripped from their communities, um, and, you know, forced to assimilate to Euro-Canadian culture. And so, the, the, the commission um, heard from survivors all over the country. It held national events and it heard testimony. Um, and in the end, produced a substantive report that detailed the history and the legacy of the system. Um, and it also made a series of recommendations that it called calls to action. And that's important because it didn't just want to make recommendations. It wanted to call people to action. And so based on the premise that you know before we start the process of reconciliation we first have to engage as a society with the truth it set out a vision for how to build a new relationship based on an acceptance and a wider societal understanding of what actually happened to communities to families and to children in this history so um, as part of its calls to action they were directed at sort of all segments of society. So the, the calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada have had, for example, really important impacts in the field of education and curriculum in this country, but also it had sort of specific directives for national museums uh, as well as archives. And so in its 94 calls to action, uh, it called on museums to engage uh, in truth telling and it sort of placed, and it said, and this is its own words, that museums had an ethical responsibility to foster the truth. And so this is sort of um, from where um, the, the context of truth and reconciliation, at least as we talk about it today, comes from. 
but in fact you know of course in canada as in other places in the world there were people calling for dramatic sort of revisions to how museums did their work long before then um, and in canada that was largely the result of an exhibit called the spirit sings which was held during the calgary olympics in 1988 mm -hmm. um, really interesting exhibition and one that's still examined a lot today uh, for the way that it sort of depicted indigenous cultures and nations um, and prompted also a, a series of really important calls for changes in museums. You mentioned this idea that there was a specific call to action and that there were sort of steps within that call to action, but one of the first steps towards reconciliation is clearly developing a shared understanding of what has happened and of course then what is happening going forward but the the specific language i think that the truth and reconciliation commission of canada had was that the museums should not simply tell one party's version of the past but instead that the museum or the Canadian Museum of Human Rights should tell the history of residential schools and Aboriginal peoples in ways that invite multiple, sometimes conflicting perspectives, yet ultimately facilitate empathy, mutual respect, and as a, desi a desire for reconciliation that is rooted in justice. This sounds like an incredibly complex process, and even for museums that have been thinking about these issues, as you say, since at least the 1980s, how do you how do you start discussions, or in fact, where do you even pick up as a way to start dealing with conflicting um, conflicting perspectives and and dealing with trying to facilitate empathy and respect? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I think you know certainly um, one of the things that's that's really important sort of in my community, but that's also really a point that the, the TRC's final report makes is the idea that reconciliation, truth and reconciliation are based in relationships. And so when you approach museum practice from the perspective of relationships, what is a very complex question that you set out and that the TRC laid out um, actually becomes really simple. If I think about what it means to engage in a good relationship with someone, with you, if you and I are going to be friends, we're going to have a good relationship, mm -hmm. then I'm going to um, treat you with respect. I'm not going to come to your home and sort of let myself in and maybe sit on your couch, throw my feet up on your table and actually kick you out, um, eat all the food in your fridge and, and think that we're okay, right? So I think, you know, from a, from a museum point of view, one of the stories or, or one of the concepts that I most love that is actually not um, based in Métis culture at all, uh, but is based in Six Nations history is the idea of the two-row wampum. Um, the two-row wampum belt being a, um, an agreement that was first sort of made, um, at least with Europeans, between the Haudenosaunee and the Dutch. And so the belt is made of wampum shells, and you may already know it, but it has three, uh, sorry, two purple rows of beads separated by three white rows. So it goes white, purple, white, purple, white. And the two purple rows represent two ships or two vessels sailing down a river, neither one interfering with, with its course, and it represents a relationship. 
and the way that I've been taught it is that the white pieces of that belt, the white sections, represent the values of truth, friendship, and respect. And so from a museum standpoint, if I think about, you know, when we're creating stories, when we're trying to engage people in empathy, I think about engaging them in a new relationship, in a relationship that's founded on those principles. You know, Indigenous nations don't have hundreds and hundreds of treaties, but there's a really good reason, and it's not because they didn't make those treaties, but it's because many of those early agreements, particularly between First Nations, were agreements that were based on principles, and you don't need to renegotiate a principle. It just is, and it may look different in a different time, but the principle always remains. Right. And so when I think about doing things in the museum in a different way, um, that really complex idea of empathy and respect and conflicting perspectives, you can sort of bring it down to a more micro level and think about what does that look like between two people? And then what does that look like between a curator and the community that he or she is working with? And what does that look like between the institution and the First Nation? or its partners. So there are a lot of really, like, I really like to think about the nuts and bolts of this in a really grounded way. And so there are a number of things that we've tried um, and that we, we are continuing to try. You know, it's not a, a static uh, idea or concept that really try to engage this notion of good relationships, open communication and truth, friendship and respect. And how do we do things uh, in a better way, keeping those ideas in mind? And really, I think that's too how you can connect things that may seem to non-Indigenous people to be really abstract ideas, um, ideas like self-determination, ideas like reconciliation into something that's meaningful and that they can actually feel empowered to engage in in their everyday lives. I mean, that's ultimately what we want visitors to do. We want them to walk away from our museum with a greater understanding, um, but also with sort of a better, better tools with which to encounter the world, whether that is an openness of spirit or a new way to speak to somebody that they wouldn't normally engage with, or a new way to think about an idea. You know, that's that's what truth and reconciliation is about at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, and I think too at many other institutions in this country who are dealing with um, the same ideas. I really like this. Well, I think that that way of thinking about it is really beautiful. But you mentioned that you have this interest in the nuts and bolts of how these things manifest. Okay. Can you talk about some of the specific strategies that you sure. championed at the museum and, and some of the revisions in process and in content that you actually yeah. brought about and how the museum is now dealing with Indigenous content? Yeah, so, um, I mean, it starts with, for sure, um, thinking about what place museums have traditionally occupied in Indigenous communities, and they haven't necessarily been friends of those communities. So for me, it was it really meant like taking a step back. I'm a historian by training, and so I really like to look back on things to see sort of where they started and how, how they got to be the way that they are. I was sort of question things that are just when people say it's just the way it is I always say oh really but anyways so one of the things one of the most basic things that museums do is that they collect and they exhibit 
And if you look at those two ideas, let's start with the idea of collection. You know, in um, many First Nations, you know, it's not, um, I can't just take something from you. Um, we can sort of share ownership for it. We might share authority for it. You might gift it to me, and if you gift it to me, then I can do with it what I want. But it would always be within the context of our relationship, right? Um, same with exhibiting. You know, you might you might give to me a story, or you might give to me something, um, but I would never show it in a way that's disrespectful. Um, and so, you know, fundamentally, um, one of the things that we revised, one of the very concrete things that we initially revised was our oral history agreement. So the Canadian Museum for Human Rights has a, an oral history program, and we, we try to um, interview different people um, to get their perspectives and their stories. And some might be sort of everyday people that you'd run into at any time, and some might be you know, people who would be considered really prominent or activists or sort of change makers. Um, but either way, you know, we're, 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 we're recording oral histories. Uh, and we often talk about collecting oral histories, right? Our collection is our oral histories. And I worked with somebody on a recent exhibit who was really uncomfortable with the idea that we would record her story and then we would get to decide what happens to it, right? That we would essentially own it. Now, the challenge is Canadian copyright law says exactly that. It says the person that records the story owns the story. Right. So it's a challenge because we're actually working also in a really colonized legislative context. But one of the things that we were able to do with that particular individual was um, to uh, modify um, our oral history agreement um, to make it more relationship based. And so instead of saying we're recording your story and we now own it, we'll do such and such and such with it as we see fit. Um, we both soften the language of that agreement, but we were also able to insert sort of a moral rights clause into that that said, if you disagree with something that we're doing, um, you know, this is forever your story. We're not taking it from you. This remains your story. You're allowing us to use it. You're allowing us to record it right now for this specific purpose that you have agreed to, but you continue to have authority over this story and we're not taking it from you. Right. So that was like a, a sort of a, a really, you know, it seems like a really simple thing, but it was like something that took months and months and months to to reach because of grappling with like essentially Canadian copyright law, which is really complicated. Um, one of the other things that we um, did that was really sort of concrete is like museums often borrow from archives or other collections who may not necessarily know the provenance of an item or where it comes from, or it may not have a very good history in that institution, so it may have been taken from a community at one point, or the community may not even be aware that, that the, the museum or the institution has that item. So one of the things, and I mean, it's kind of neat to work in a museum that deals with such contemporary subject matter, because in some ways this is a lot easier for me than it would be for someone who is just working you know, on historical stuff is that I was able to source an exhibit's artifact entirely from the lenders who also recorded oral histories with us. So in that way, you know, the oral history and the trust that they placed in me and in us in lending us these artifacts were all symbolic of this relationship that we were in, right? 
and all of the decisions made with respect to the display and how we were going to use those objects sort of remained with those people and so you know i know a lot of museums have really great ways of looking at and working with different communities and so this is definitely not not taking away from that but it's just a different way to go forward saying you know you know based on our relationship this relationship that we've developed over many many months you know the the individual would say i would like to lend you this i would like to show this with my story and i'm giving you from my personal belongings and some of these things were you know so significant to the people like they could never be replaced you could never replace them and they said, I'm placing my trust in you and I'm giving you this. And I'm trusting that you're going to care for it. And caring for it sometimes involves ceremony. So I'm trusting that you're going to, you know, if it needs ceremony, you're going to conduct ceremony. Um, if this object needs to um, be smudged, you're going to, you know, get a feather and you're going to smudge it. You're going to do those things. And so, for instance, um, one of the contributors to our most uh, recent exhibit, or one of our most recent exhibits, I guess not the most recent now, uh, it's called Rites of Passage, and it's um, it's an exhibit that deals with um, human rights history in Canada, but of course, like really problematic because it only deals with 150 years of Canada's human rights history, um, which was intended. It was an exhibit that came out during Canada's sesquicentennial, so Canada's the 150th anniversary of Confederation. And so one of the stories we worked on was a, a gentleman whose community had been forcefully relocated in the Arctic uh, five separate times. And in the 1980s, so this happened in the 1950s and 60s, and in the 1980s, he was able to organize a trip for the elders back to his home community of Enadai Lake. And um, he, in the course of that trip, he found some old toys. So he found a toy kayak on his family's old camping site, you know, and he brought that back with him. But, you know, this is a, a this is an item that cannot be replaced. I mean, it was an item that sat there for 30 something years while the community was relocated that he found 35 years later or 30 years later, right? And, and so he, you know, very generously brought it in his backpack to Winnipeg to show me. He was very excited and showed me this thing and said he would lend it to me. Um, he also lent the museum some carvings that his now deceased parents had made to trade for food rations. Um, and he had received those carvings back from um, one of the individuals with whom they had traded rations. So that person, you know, in the spirit of sort of reconciliation had you know, in the 1990s, written to him and said, I took these from your parents, you know, in exchange for rations, and I want to give them back to you. And so these are things that, you know, he couldn't have replaced. And because they came from him, they were so much more meaningful than borrowing them from another institution, right? And so all of the things that we borrowed for that exhibit um, for that exhibition were borrowed from from the contributors themselves and, it, and in that way they sort of really felt like they were in a relationship with me they were in a relationship with the museum and I actually had a, um, a person walk into walk into the exhibition after it opened and it's a person who had never been in the museum 
because they had some really serious problems, a young Indigenous activist, because she had some really serious problems with the way in which the museum had dealt with the history of residential uh, schools. And she walked into this space and she started crying. She said, I've never walked into this place and felt respected. And today I feel respected. Like one of the things that you're talking about is a process of either building trust where trust has never been or rebuilding trust where trust has been damaged or injured. And I think that is, you know, what you're talking about with relationships, but it's it's acknowledging in a relationship that there is there is a past and there is a history that the institution has, even if it doesn't always think about its own past and that what what you're what we're needing to do is actually think about then how you build those trust relationships again. Now, in your case, it sounds like a lot of this was through one-to-one relationships as well. Yeah. Is that, would you say that's a fair observation? Yeah, that's definitely a fair observation. And I mean, I think that's one of the changes that institutions may have to consider is capacity for that. Because, you know, it's tiring. You know, I was, for, for over a year, I was on the phone every day with, you know, eight different people trying to you know, build relationships and make sure that we were doing things, as we say, in a really good way. But, you know, building this trust requires significant investment. It requires an investment of time. It requires an investment of human resources. And it for sure requires an investment of money. Because, you know, you have to go see people. You have to do some things face-to-face, some things you can't do. You know, the modern world is, like, wonderful, but you can't always do these things over the Internet or over the phone. And so building these relationships one-on-one or as people needed them was really important. You know, the thing is, like, when we think about in many Indigenous communities and certainly in my own Anishinaabe worldview, um, you know, I position myself in relation to the world around me and in relation to other people. And so the relationships that I have are actually the most important, you know, it's uh, that is that is the thing that makes me. It is the thing that makes us as Anishinaabe and Métis people. Um, it is the thing that ties us to our land and to our territories. And so, like our relationships are the most foundational. But building trust or rebuilding trust with communities who have traditionally not been very respected by institution requires like a lot of boots on the ground. In sort of you know boots on the ground, I think. Um, and also like consistency, um, you know, you have to really commit, like, it's like any relationship, you have to commit to your relationship and to seeing it through. And you can't just now, do something you know, for one exhibition. Yeah. It's not a one-off. And like, even now, right. I, you know, I'm not right now at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. I'm on leave right now, but all of those people are like, I'm still talking to them. Like maybe not every day, but like we touch base, like we, if they're in town, we'll go for coffee or if I'm traveling, we'll go visit. And it's like, you know, you never know, like when you maintain those relationships and when you build that trust to another level, you will never know what you'll get out of it. You know, the elders that advise me now are people um, that I actually got to know through the process of doing museum work. And they're the people that now like sort of advise me daily about what I'm doing right or what I'm doing wrong or (laughs) what I need to do better um, in my relationships and in my work. And so that that's sort of been a really important outcome for me personally as well. 
Yeah. One of the things I think is really interesting is you've written about approaching reconciliation through a framework of hope rather than a framework of guilt. And I think hope is a really powerful way of framing these conversations, but it's interesting even hearing that sort of juxtaposition of guilt and hope as these sort of two ideas with which we often come to this conversation. Can you talk a little bit about why hope, why guilt, why these are such formative ideas in this discussion space? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that like a lot of this sort of thinking comes both from the museum as well as from my experience teaching um, and a lot of sort of perceptions that I think that particularly non-Indigenous Canadians bring to these conversations Um, because of the focus that we've had on truth and reconciliation um, since the publication of the TRC's final report in the last, well, I guess a few years now, it's time has flown. you know, many people, many settlers, uh, many non-Indigenous Canadians come to the conversation thinking about um, guilt as sort of the feeling that they should feel when they hear about this thing uh, or these events. And they come to the conversation and they say, oh, you know, I just I just don't want to feel guilty anymore. Or, you know, they avoid the conversations because they have an expectation that this is the Indigenous expectation of them. You know, and they don't want to come into a conversation that's based on them feeling guilty. And I, you know, fundamentally, I don't think that most Indigenous people are thinking, geez, I really hope that this person feels terrible. I think that what many of us are thinking are, I hope that this person understands the the context and some of our truths about our experiences in this country um, and with colonization. That's important for them to understand who we have become as people and who we are as nations, um, trying to sort of regain uh, our strength and our power and our place. Um, And in many cases, that's well underway. But anyways, so when people sort of come to the conversation thinking about how they don't want to feel guilty anymore, it really narrows the scope of engagement and action and sort of closes off a part of people. And, you know, I see this in visitors too. It closes off a part of them. And so instead of forming relationships or instead of making connections maybe between some of their experiences or engagements with different communities um, and the experiences of Indigenous people, what they're really thinking is oh, like I, these feelings are yucky and I don't want to feel them and they'll quickly walk away. So I think the, the power in thinking about reconcil- truth and reconciliation through the specter of hope is that it really does reframe the conversation um, towards the future. It says what can we do today to continue to build hope and, and continue to build momentum in truth and reconciliation for the future. I mean unfortunately as happens a lot with a lot of these ideas, you know, reconciliation um, has been applied in many cases in a really limited way, and it hasn't been applied in thinking about how to reframe relationships. And so when it's applied in such a limited way, it sort of like gains a bad rap. (laughs) Like, I don't know how else to say that. It gains a bad reputation in First Nations communities, Métis communities, Inuit communities, because you know, it seems void, it seems meaningless. So approaching, you know, with hope instead of guilt, um, hope doesn't mean that you're looking at it everything through sort of rose-colored glasses. 
um, you know, you can approach something with hope based on an understanding and a recognition of the past. Um, but also based on an orientation towards the future. And so I think the process of building relationships is predicated on this idea that you're going to be hopeful that it's going to turn out well, right? And when museums approach the conversations about truth and reconciliation from a place of hope, from a place of possibility, it really widens the specter for action, both for individuals and for institutions. Unfortunately, the rest of Karin's interview dropped out here. Technology is just the worst. <laughs> but I'd like to thank Karin and Omar for their thoughtful perspectives. And I'll make sure to drop a, some links to some of both their work, to their thinking and their writing in the show notes. So you can follow up with both of them and learn more about what they're doing and what they're thinking. It was so wonderful to hear from both of them and to really think about this topic of truth and reconciliation. There is so much here, but as we move forward, as we do think about the role of museums in dealing with systematic and systemic human rights violations and through healing and what our role is in that, this is definitely an area for future work. Museopunks is presented every month by the American Alliance of Museums. You can connect with me on Twitter at Museopunks or check out the extended show notes at museopunks.org. And of course, you can subscribe anytime at iTunes or Stitcher. One final plug before I sign off. On October 8, I will be giving the keynote at the Visitor Experience Conference in San Antonio, Texas. If you're in the area or if you're going to be at the conference, let me know. I would love to get in contact, say hi, and hear more about what you've been thinking about in terms of progressive museum practice in your world. Until next time, have a great month. Oh, my God.